This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University, and I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Kasim Kassam. Kasim is professor of philosophy at the University of Warwick. His research specialization is epistemology, broadly construed to include issues concerning self-knowledge, self-awareness, as well as epistemic virtues and vices. He's also interested in topics in what has come to be called social and political epistemology. His new book brings together many of these interests. It's titled Vices of the Mind, From the Intellectual to the Political. It's just been published by Oxford University Press. Now, sometimes people are blameworthy or otherwise not admirable, because of what they believe. But sometimes they're blameworthy or otherwise not admirable because of how they believe. That is for how they think, their ways of gathering evidence or inquiring, managing information, engaging with interlocutors, and so on. Hence, we sometimes criticize others for being careless, dogmatic, gullible, and so on, quite independently of what we might think of what we might call the content of what they believe. Now, in many contexts, these evaluations have the form of appraisals of the person to whom they are applied. So, just as we might speak of intellectual virtues, we can also speak of intellectual vices. In Vices of the Mind, Kasim Kassam develops a conception of intellectual or what might be called epistemic vice, and he explores the places where these vices occur, where they appear, and where they flourish and thrive. The result is a fascinating examination of the ways in which individuals' flawed ways of thinking can impact others and indeed the world. So there's a lot to talk about, as there normally is. But let's begin with our guest. Hello, Kasim. Oh, hi, Bob. (laughs) How are you today? Uh, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing fine. Um, Wanted to start us off uh, by telling us a little bit about yourself. Uh, So I was born in uh, Mombasa in Kenya, and um, I was raised... Uh, by a mother who was a devout uh, Ismaili Muslim and a father who was a devout Marxist. Uh, Strange combination. Uh, Well, my father, I think, won the battle for my teenage soul. And when I was 11, he gave me a book by an American Marxist called Leo Huberman, uh, as well as the selected works of Marx and Engels. Uh, I don't really know how much of that I took in, but I certainly spent my teens reading Marxism. Uh, And by the time I was about 16, I thought that my understanding of Marx would be deepened by 
uh, knowledge of political philosophy. So I then read uh, Plato, Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, uh, and others. Um, but I still thought that Marxism and political philosophy were, were really what I was interested in. And so I applied to do a degree at Oxford called PPE, which is philosophy, politics, and economics. Um, and in those days, you had to take a series of exams to get in. And I still remember those exams and remember some of my answers, every one of which was staunchly Marxist. Uh, so when I got to Oxford, a couple of things happened. I mean, the first was that I actually studied Marxism as part of my degree and found myself much less convinced by Marx than I had been as a teenager. Uh, and at the same time, although I remained very interested in political philosophy, I also started to read uh, analytic philosophy or analytic epistemology, analytic metaphysics. And a turning point for me was when I read um, a book by Peter Strawson called Individuals, uh, which was uh, um, had, had a huge impact on me. And from that moment on, I think I started to do much less political philosophy and much more work on, on Kant and Strawson. Um, so in a way, my work now, uh, which is which is becoming more political, um, which I think surprises some people, from, from my own point of view, it's actually going back to my, my intellectual roots and some of the issues that I was exercised by when I was a teenager. Fabulous. Um, and am I right to think that um, there's a, a broader trend uh, within epistemology uh, that follows this kind of trajectory, that epistemology as a field is becoming more interested in the social and political questions that um, emerge when one starts thinking about how knowledge is transferred and, and how it can go badly? Yes, I think that's right. Uh, so the social epistemology is, is, is a real growth area in the subject. And uh, at least for my money, some of the most interesting work that's uh, being done in epistemology currently is, is, is work on, on social epistemology and, and actually work that engages um, to varying degrees with uh, political and um, ideological issues. And there's actually a whole bunch of people now who um, are starting to do work, which in the old days you might have described as applied um, epistemology. Um, it, is, it is applied, but it's also theoretical. Um, and I think, as I say, the main point is that it, it, it's very much concerned um, with what you might just call social issues and not just the individual knower it considered right. in isolation from other So um, why don't we then sort of keep the focus sort of uh, on the big picture here. Um, I suspect many listeners, but maybe not all, uh, will know something about the emergence, I guess, over now, what has it been 30 years, uh, of what's known as virtue epistemology. Um, but um, I, I suspect fewer will know about the more recent development that is the um, the focus among some people who have been interested in virtue epistemology, particularly on vices and the emergence of what's now known as vice epistemology. Um, maybe we can start by you giving some of, of that background. Sure. So um, I suppose when people talk about virtue epistemology these days, uh, they talk about a, a, a kind of strand in epistemology that's been going at least since uh, the work of Ernest Sosa in the 1980s, 
Um, but for my purposes, I, the, the, the background, I guess, that's most relevant to my own work is a book that was published in 1996 by Linda Zagzebski mm-hmm. called Virtues of the Mind. And of course, my book is called Vices of the Mind. Uh, and Zagzebski's book is, is um, about intellectual virtues and the relevance of intellectual virtues for knowledge. So um, by intellectual virtues, she means things like attentiveness, open-mindedness, thoroughness, carefulness, intellectual courage, intellectual humility, uh, fairness, and um, some other ones besides those. So she thinks of uh, intellectual virtues as acquired intellectual excellences. Um, They're virtues in something like Aristotle's sense. And she's interested in these um, intellectual virtues, both because she's interested in in them for their own sake, but also she thinks that um, reflection on intellectual virtues uh, tells us a a great deal about um, the concept of knowledge. So she, she, in the end, wants to give a kind of analysis of knowledge uh, by saying something like this, that knowledge um, is a cognitive state that you get into through the exercise of the appropriate mm-hmm. intellectual virtue. I'm paraphrasing, but that's that's roughly the idea. Uh, and thanks to the work of, of Zagzebski and um, uh, Sosa and many other figures in in that tradition, there's, been, there's now a huge literature on on uh, intellectual virtues you know what roughly speaking asking questions like you know what are they how do we acquire them uh, are we responsible for them why is it important that we have them uh, what sorts of traits are intellectual virtues and and so on so that, that that's that those are the, some of the questions that have been the focus of of what is now virtue um, virtue epistemology now, different virtue epistemologists have different conceptions of, of what the intellectual virtues are, and Zagzebski's view is that intellectual virtues are first and foremost character traits. So when I gave you that list of uh, intellectual virtues a moment ago, that they, according to Zagzebski, they're all character traits. Um, so like many uh, virtue epistemologists, she talks in passing about intellectual vices, Um, but she doesn't really have a developed theory of them. And in fact, uh, as I discovered, very few virtue epistemologists have much to say about intellectual vices. So natural thought is that, well, if there are intellectual virtues, then surely there've got to be intellectual vices. Um, So some of the examples that she gives of intellectual vices are intellectual pride, uh, negligence, idleness, carelessness, prejudice, um, wishful thinking, closed-mindedness, lack of thoroughness. So these are all examples of intellectual vices, according to her. Uh, But as I say, she doesn't really have a huge amount to say about them. Uh, So when I became interested in this this topic, um, I looked around to see what people had actually said about um, intellectual vices and, and, and felt that they hadn't said enough and that this was something I wanted to uh, to, to pursue for a whole variety of, re- of, of reasons, which some philosophical and some to do with just wanting to understand how the world works and having the intuition that actually if we want to understand how things are going in the world today, we're probably well advised to think about not just intellectual virtues, but intellectual vices. 
So um, that that was the start. And I thought at the beginning of all this that I needed a label for my project. I needed a label for the kind of epistemology that I was proposing to do. So I assumed that as there was uh, such a field as virtue epistemology, somebody must have um, talked about vice epistemology. So I googled vice epistemology, and much to my amazement, discovered that it nothing came up. <laughs> it, it wasn't it, it wasn't a phrase that had ever been, ever ever been used. So I thought, right, this is my chance. <laughs> so I promptly wrote a paper uh, called Vice Epistemology in an attempt to kind of copyright it. Um, so in that paper, which came out in I think 2016, I gave a, I gave a definition of vice epistemology, um, which uh, was something like this. So I said, vice epistemology is the philosophical study of the nature, identity, and epistemological significance of epistemic vices. That was my definition. Now in that definition, I talk about epistemic vices, not intellectual vices, and, and maybe that's. Some, something we, we can talk about. But that was the basic idea. So vice epistemology is basically the philosophical study of intellectual or epistemic vices. Um, and um, having, having kind of named the field uh, and identified um, a project, I thought that I would have a go at, at writing a book about, about these um, intellectual, intellectual vices. And, and that's the book that we're talking about today, Vices of the Mind. Oh, fabulous! Um, so, why don't we um, pick up there and 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 start talking about um, uh, the book itself? Which um, we have a nice segue because um, you begin the book um, by quoting um, Susan Stebbing. Her remark: uh, she remarks about the urgent need for the citizens of a democracy to think well. Um, and m- many of your examples the b- begin each of the chapters, in fact, um, of vices of the mind are political. Um, it's clear that political events, including the Iraqi war, the, the Brexit vote, um, were very much on your mind as you were writing the book. They are the centerpieces of some of the um, threads that work through the book. Um, so um, maybe we can pick up there and say a little bit more about the political background to the book. Um, to what extent did you see the book as um, helping us or as helping us at least to diagnose um, politics today? Okay, so I never pass up an opportunity to quote Stebbing. So Great. <laughs> for, the, for, for, for listeners who, who maybe don't know this, so, so, so Susan, Susan Stebbing was a British philosopher um, who published a book in 1939 um, on the eve of the Second World War. The book was called Thinking to Some Purpose. And she says the following, which I think is uh, something we all need to say today. Uh, there is an urgent need today for the citizens of a democracy to think well. It is not enough to have freedom of the press and parliamentary institutions. Uh, that struck me as a, as a profound insight, and you can certainly see why in 1939 she was very exercised by the need for the citizens of a democracy to, to think well. Now, I, I, I don't claim that, that, that um, I started to work on vice epistemology um, mainly as, as, as a result of wanting to think about politics. Um, I mean, I had, I had sort of independent philosophical reasons for being interested in the field. Um, but what is true is that, is that when I actually started to work in a serious way on the book, uh, 
it, 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 it was not. It was 2016, um, and uh, in 2016 there was a slight sense, I think, of you know the world basically going mad. Um, I mean, we had, uh, uh, of, of course, uh, the election of Mr. Trump in 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 the U.S. and 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 in the U.K. We had um, we had the Brexit vote and all the. Uh, uh, all the debates and discussions surround, surrounding that, and 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 I, I did feel that that actually, if you were looking for really compelling examples of intellectual vices in action, then you 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 couldn't do much better than to look at to look at politics actually, because it it, it struck me that um, if if we really wanted to make sense of some of these, in in my view, rather worrying developments in the political world the sense the sense of the quality of debate being in being in decline the sense that um people were now you, you know defending defending positions on the basis of no uh, no very good good arguments but nevertheless these positions were were still being accepted and endorsed by other people i i felt that we really needed to think about the thinking um that um, underpinned these political developments, um, and so I had the idea of uh, organising the book around a series of, of um, real-world uh, political examples. So instead of doing the usual thing that philosophers do, um, which is to come to have made up examples to illustrate what they want to say, I thought, well, if we're going to talk about yeah, intellectual vices, let's look at some actual real world intellectual vices, both as a way to get clear about what these vices are, but also to, 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 to really see why they matter, to see what kind of impact they have. Um, so as you, as you said, the book is organized around a series of, 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 of examples. So each chapter starts off with an example from, um, from, from politics. So the, the first chapter basically starts off with um, the run-up to the 2003 uh, Iraq War, and asks the question: How could it all have gone so horribly wrong? I mean, why why were so many mistakes made um, in preparing for the war? I, I wasn't. I'm not really addressing the question of whether the war was right or wrong, but but why things went as badly as they did. Um, and um, so I use that to illustrate how intellectual vices like overconfidence and arrogance can have catastrophic um, consequences for the conduct of um, um, military affairs as well as political affairs um, more, more generally. Um, and with that example in mind, I then tried to um, develop a kind of philosophical theory both about the nature of these intellectual vices uh, and about their um, about their consequences um, or, or implications, um, and as time, I mean, as I wrote the book and and you looked at looked looked at other examples, you know, for example, the Brexit debate in the UK, um, it struck me that it was actually very fruitful to to to, to do it to do it that way, um, and um, I mean, one thing that one thing that emerged was that it became clear as I, as I worked on it that intellectual vices aren't just one kind of thing. There are lots of different intellectual vices, and they are, in, in my view, vices of rather different kinds. 
And you start to see some of these differences when you think about um, how they how they um, apply, how they pan out in relation to these various incidents that I that I talk about in the book. Right, right. So um, I want to make sure that we get to um, talking about uh, the sort of variety, the mixed bag of um, um, different features or phenomena that uh, you you gather together under uh, your conception of epistemic vice. But first, you know, you do have a sort of what we might think of as sort of a unified conception of um, what renders uh, a trait or a way of thinking or an attitude vicious uh, epistemically. Um, that is, you have this view that you call uh, obstructivism, um, which holds that um, uh, the vices are such that what makes them vicious is that they get in the way of knowledge. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that overall view? Yeah, so if you're thinking about virtues or, or vices, I think there are kind of two broad approaches that you can have to this subject. So one broad approach you can have is to be a consequentialist. So what you can think is that what makes a virtue a virtue is something to do with uh, its consequences. Um, uh, and, and similarly for for. Devices. So that so, so these are all forms of con- consequentialism, not not in the sense of utilitarianism, but just in just in the kind of intuitive sense that vices are vices in virtue of their effects or their consequences or their results. Uh, a different view is that what makes virtues virtues and vices vices has something to do with their motives. So you might think that um, intellectual virtues are virtuous in virtue of um, somehow embedding or incorporating or involving good motives, um, and that epistemic vices are vicious because they incorporate or embed bad motives. So, so, so those are the two basic approaches. And then there are people like uh, Zagzebski who have who, who think that actually both motives and consequences are relevant um, uh, for the purposes of classifying virtues and, and vices. So, if you think in terms of that sort of dichotomy, then then. I'm very much on the kind of consequentialist side of things. So, so the basic, the kind of starting intuition is that if you if you're trying to work out well what's so bad about closed-mindedness, what's so bad about dogmatism, um, what's so bad about them, on my view, is not that they necessarily have bad motives or are underpinned by bad motives. What's bad about them is that they have bad um, bad consequences of a certain sort. So. Then the next question is, well, what are these bad consequences? Um, And my thought in the book is that what makes the vices vicious is that they, to put it crudely, they get in the way of knowledge. Um, So they um, obstruct the gaining of knowledge, the keeping of knowledge, or the sharing of knowledge. And not only do they... Do these things? They do these things systematically. So, 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 um, so, with respect to each um, supposed um, vice, uh, the question one should be asking oneself is: Does this vice systematically get in the way of knowledge? If it does, how does it do it? I mean, does it get in the way of knowledge by getting in the way of the gaining of knowledge? Does it get in the way of the keeping of knowledge, or the sharing of knowledge, or maybe all three, or maybe two of those, two of those three? 
Uh, and that also actually explains the label epistemic. Um, so if you're going to if you're going to emphasize the impact of these vices on knowledge to the extent that I do, um, then of course one might as well call them epistemic vices. Um, however, I, I, although I don't really talk about this very much in the book, I mean it seems to me that it's perfectly okay to say that these vices also get in the way of understanding. Um, maybe understanding is 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 itself mm. a kind. Of um, a kind of knowing. So I think people who put the emphasis on understanding maybe are more inclined to call them intellectual vices, and people who put the emphasis more on, on, their, on their impact on knowledge are more inclined to call them epistemic vices. So, so, so that's, 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 the, that's the kind of big picture. So we're, we're talking about a, a broadly consequentialist approach to epistemic vices and, and saying that um, it's at least a necessary condition for something to be uh, an epistemic vice that it gets in the way of knowledge in in one or other way. Um, now that's a necessary condition. It's not a sufficient condition. I mean, there are lots of things that get in the way of knowledge that um, I think we we wouldn't call vices um, at all. And um, that's something else that I'm trying to take account of in my um, definition of obstructivism. So just to give you an example, um, I mean, if you think about acute insomnia. So supposing that insomnia makes you very forgetful um, or just very tired. Um, now, obviously, being forgetful and tired is, is not going to be very good for you as a knower. So, 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 so clearly, forgetfulness is something that gets in the way of the, the keeping or retaining of knowledge. So it looks as though um, insomnia is a condition that has bad epistemic consequences or may have uh, bad epistemic consequences. Um, but it's not an epistemic vice. Um, so, well, why not? I, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of a natural question um, um, to ask. And uh, there, are, there are various uh, answers to that question. I mean, one answer to that question, which may, maybe isn't, isn't one that, that it's, it's very easy to spell out, would be to say, well, insomnia is not a condition of the intellect. Um, uh, so it's not an in, it's not exactly an intellectual vice. I mean, it's a condition that has uh, effects on one's intellectual functioning, but isn't itself a condition of the intellect. Um, I mean, maybe that isn't entirely satisfactory because one would then need to say, what's a condition of the intellect? And that's not a very easy question to answer. Um, but another consideration that is 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 relevant, I think, is that. Um, in normal circumstances, insomnia is not something for which um, we're, we're, we're blamed. I mean, not in, uh, I mean, unless you you know want do things to make yourself an insomniac, um, it's not something for which um, one one is one is one is blamed, and that's relevant because I think that um, the intuitive notion of uh, an epistemic or an intellectual vice is something for which blame or at least some kind of negative evaluation um, is, is, is appropriate. Um, so so, uh, so that's, that's, that's the sort of second kind of element of, of, of the theory. When we talk about intellectual vices or epistemic vices, we're not just talking about what things that get in the way of, of knowledge. We're talking about um, uh, 
traits or personal qualities that get in the way of knowledge and that are blameworthy or for or, or for which we are right. um, negatively evaluated. Right. So that still is a pretty um, or, or, or suggests a pretty broad conception of um, what these qualities that are vicious that get in the way of knowledge in that systematic and blameworthy or non-admirable way. Um, so um, throughout the book, you you identify um, some vices as traits, traits of character. Um, other vices are um, uh, um, analyzed as attitudes. Um, and then there are others that you call are sort of ways or styles of thinking. Um, can you tell us a little bit about those rough three categories of uh, epistemic vice um, and maybe begin uh, with your discussion of uh, closed-mindedness? Uh, yeah, so, uh, so so if you look at um, the kind of Aristotelian tradition of thinking about virtues and vices, it's, it's almost always assumed in that tradition that both um, intellectual virtues and intellectual vices are character traits. Um, that tends not to be argued for, but that is something that is uh, that is certainly um, assumed. Um, now, coming into this subject, it wasn't really obvious to me why one would want to limit um, virtues and vices to character traits. And it struck me as rather odd, actually, that 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 I, I gave earlier on. I gave you some of Zagzebski's examples of of intellectual vices, and she is someone who thinks of intellectual vices as character traits. But one of the vices that she mentions is wishful thinking. Um, now, wishful thinking doesn't immediately strike me as a character trait. I mean, wishful thinking strikes well. It's a way of thinking. It's a. It's a. It's a. It, um, now, I mean, of course, if you are someone who uh, systematically engages in wishful thinking, then perhaps I might describe you as a wishful thinker, and that might be a that might be a comment about your character. But of course, you can engage in a spot of wishful thinking without being a wishful thinker in the sense of someone who does it a lot or who does it all the time. Um, so, so, so when you when you know when you engage in a particular piece of wishful thinking, and when your thinking is described as wishful on that occasion or in that context, then that's not a, not yet a comment about your character. It's a comment about your your thinking. Um, now, it seems to me that wishful thinking is indeed an intellectual vice. It is indeed an epistemic vice. Uh, but if it's not a character trait, as I've just argued, then it looks as though there's at least one intellectual vice that's not um, a character trait. Now, of course, on reflection, there are lots of other um, kinds or styles of thinking that um, um, are also epistemically or intellectually problematic that are also not character traits. So that led to the idea that that um, it, it, you certainly need to recognize that there are at least these two kinds of intellectual vice. But then, well, what about what about prejudice? I mean, what kind of intellectual vice is that? Um, so it, it, in that case, I think I would be inclined to say that well prejudice to me is 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 it's it's a it's a negative attitude or i mean it could be a positive attitude but in any case it's an attitude um towards to um uh, towards something uh, so if i have i mean if i have a prejudice um um against um you know a particular a particular activity then um that's to say i have a negative attitude towards that activity um, now, a a attitudes, um, I think, are not 
themselves ways of thinking. Um, they may be related to ways of thinking, but they're not themselves ways of thinking. And nor are they themselves character traits. Um, I mean, I might have um, a prejudice against something in particular, but not be someone who is uh, g- generally prone to having lots of strong prejudices. And so, so that doesn't look like a case in which um, you know, I'm prejudiced as a matter of character. It's just a case in which I have a particular prejudice. Um, so there you have another uh, uh, another category of um, intellectual vice. So there are intellectual vices that are character traits. There are intellectual vices that are ways of thinking, and there are intellectual vices that are attitudes. Now, uh, so, so the position I'm defending is 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 what you might call vice pluralism, um, and it and my vice pluralism is intended to be pretty relaxed. I mean, in the book, I talk about these three three categories of, of epistemic vice. Um, and when I, when I actually kind of give a, give a definition of, of obstructivism, I say that uh, an epistemic vice is, is a negatively evaluated um, character trait attitude or way of thinking that systematically gets in the way of knowledge. But that's not intended as a, as a, kind, of, as a kind of exhaustive definition. I'm quite open to the idea that there may be other um, um, uh, other categories uh, of epistemic vice, uh, and this seems to me to be a kind of perfectly common, uh, you know, perfectly commonsensical view. I mean, I think it fits with um, the way we talk about vices. It fits with um, uh, the examples of, of, of intellectual vices that people that people come up with. Um, and I think the onus, I mean, for, for people who want to endorse a kind of vice monism, for people who want to say, look, there's only one kind of thing that counts as, a, as, uh, as an intellectual vice. I think the onus is on them to explain um, why, that, why that should be so. Um, I mean, one thought that some people have is that, well, the reason for restricting um, intellectual vices to character traits is to say that, is that well, we, we kind of intuitively think of intellectual vices and indeed virtues as deep, uh, a deep features of a person, and that only character traits can have the requisite depth. Um, so that looks like a kind of um, argument for restricting um, vices to one kind of thing, but it doesn't. It doesn't seem to me to be a very good argument. I mean, I don't see why all vices have to be deep for a start. I mean, there may be um, intellectual vices that are relatively relatively shallow and and um and i don't see also why uh, ways of thinking and attitudes mm-hmm. can't have the requisite degree of depth uh, so I, so i think I'd, I'd really be inclined to to be uh, to be somewhat some somewhat relaxed and just say um mm-hmm. when we talk about intellectual vices we're talking about you know, different kinds of thing that um, um are all nevertheless you know broadly speaking conditions of the intellect their personal qualities um, and that are bad for us as uh, as knowers and that we're criticized for. Right. Um, so w- one of the um, vices that you identify as an attitude um, is what you call uh, epistemic uh, insouciance. Um, could you explain that? Um, yes. Now, this is in many ways my my, my favourite vice, <laughs> um, and it's certainly the one that that, that seems to interest interested readers um, the most. I mean, so so the basic thought is is something like this. So um, insouciance uh, in the in the kind of you know ordinary sense just means something like 
lack of concern or nonchalance or carelessness or indifference, some, something like that. So epistemic insouciance is an attitude of indifference towards whether the things that you assert um, are grounded in reality or have any evidential backing. Um, so the epistemically insouciant person says lots of things, not knowing whether the things they say are true or false, and not caring that they don't know whether the things they say are true or false. Um, so as I say in the book, epistemic insouciance is a particular form of not giving a shit. Yes. <laughs> um, and I I have to say that I was, I, I, was, I, was, I was really prompted to write about epistemic insouciance by the conduct of uh, certain politicians in the Brexit debate. Um, so, uh, I mean, no doubt, no doubt there are people, uh, in the, in, in, in the States who will uh, very easily be able to come up with their own examples of, um, epistemically insouciant conduct. Um, but just to keep it, to keep it, uh, to keep it European for the moment, I mean, in the Brexit debate, there were all sorts of claims that were being made about the, um, economic benefits, um, of Brexit. And it seemed as though the people making these claims, I mean, of course, some of them might just have been lying, but there's also there was also the sense that pe- many of the people who were making these claims really didn't care. Whether, I mean, they 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 didn't care whether they were, what they were saying was true or not. I mean, it's not that they were, um, you know, behaving like liars. They were just behaving like people who just couldn't care less um, about the facts, about the evidence. Um, so, epistemic insouciance then is, is that sort of attitude of of indifference, and it's it's of course some of your listeners will, will immediately recognize that, that, that what I'm talking about is in the same ballpark as what Harry Frankfurt talks about uh, when he talks about bullshit. Um, so um, Frankfurt says that, that, that you know, it's, it's, a, a liar, I mean, a liar is, is respectful of the truth, at least in the sense that the liar cares whether what he says is true or not. I mean, he wants it to be the case of what he says is not true. Uh, and an honest uh, and an honest person for Frankfurt, of course, also cares um, about the truth. Um, but but Frankfurt says, for the bullshitter, um, it, all bets are off. The bullshitter is neither on the side of the true nor on the side of the false. So the bullshitter doesn't care whether the things he says describe reality correctly. Mm-hmm. That's the bullshitter. So so I I, I want to say that that. Um, you know, the attitude, the bullshitter's attitude is this attitude of indifference or carelessness, which I call um, epistemic insouciance. So the way I think of the relationship between epistemic insouciance and, and bullshit is that, um, on my account, bullshit is the primary product of epistemic right. insouciance. Um, so I think the interesting question, I mean, th- th- this is something that I've thought about you know more since I published the book than when I was writing the book. Is well, how 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 do you really know? How do you really tell whether you're dealing with a bullshitter or a liar? Um, and certainly, when one looks at looks at the pronouncements of um, eminent politicians on both sides of the Atlantic, it's not it's it's often not entirely clear whether they're lying or they're bullshitting. Um, uh, I think in in reality, they're probably doing they're probably doing you know, both at, at, diff- at, at, at different times. Um, but I, 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 in the book, I mean, I talk about epistemic insouciance partly because I'm interested in it in, it, in its own right, but also because 
for me, it illustrates what an epistemically vicious attitude would look like. So, you know, if you describe somebody as epistemically insouciant, then you might be making a comment about their character. But what makes them epistemically insouciant is that they have episteme- is that is their attitude. They have this attitude of epistemic insouciance. Um, and, 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 and so I, I, call, I, I call these attitudes kind of postures or orientations. Mm-hmm. Right? So to be epistemically insouciant is to, have a, is to have a certain posture, a certain orientation towards questions of truth and falsity, a certain posture or orientation towards you know, the need for evidence, the need, to, the, need to, um, the need for the things that you say to have some kind of basis or some sort of, uh, some sort of ground. Um, um, so the epistemically insouciant person, in a way, has a sort of, in a way, sort of just contemptuous of the whole business of 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 um, of, of, of truth telling, um, but not because they're not because they uh, they're necessarily lying. I mean, they don't care enough to be liars. Um, that's what makes them epistemically insouciant. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it? <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Do you think, um, do you think that one of the, the, one of the ways in which the liar and the insouciant might be distinguished. Um, and this might not be the, the essence of the difference, but it just might be a signal of, of, of um, or a, a sort of symptom of how, how you might tell what you're dealing with. Um, uh, is the, the, the different ways in which they're resistant to correction? I mean, one of the things, again, just talking now about the politics of my own country, one of the things that is maddening to me, in addition to all the other stuff that's maddening uh, to people in general, I suspect, um, is um, the attitude of uncorrectability, even in the face of um, uh, subsequent, uh, you know, new new considerations or reasons. The president says something. Somebody brings up something that looks like really um, hard evidence that um, the, the the president's statement was not accurate. And um, there's not uh, the usual attempt to sort of um, sort of gerrymander, and and it's just a, a flat out refusal to be corrected. I think that's really helpful, and, and that seems to me absolutely right. I mean, um, if you if you're a politician who's caught in a lie, um, I mean, one thing you might do is to is to try and um, kind of talk your way out of it. Right? I mean, you might you, you you might try to you know to show that you weren't really lying, or that the facts actually really did support what you were saying, um, or, you know, or that you know you just made a mistake, or or something like that. If you're epistemically insouciant. And somebody somebody corrects what you're saying, you just don't care. It's not that it's not it's not it's not that you kind of you know um, kind of make excuses. I mean, you just keep pumping out the tweets, right? Or whatever whatever your your preferred communicative method is, and and, and that's epistemically that. Is, I mean, I think I don't know if one's really allowed to say this, but I mean, this the idea of not giving a shit it seems to me to be a profoundly important idea. 
Um, and and this is this really is the essence of this attitude. And 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 I think you're absolutely right that one actually very important manifestation of not giving a shit, and one test for whether somebody gives a shit or not is how they react to, um, as you say, how they react to being being corrected. So I, I think there is a you know I think there is a difference here. There is a, there is a genuine notion um, of, epi- of 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 epistemic insouciance. Um, I, I mean I think that that the only slight reservation I would have about this is that uh, um, I mean certainly if one thinks about uh, certain politicians, perhaps on your side of the Atlantic more than on this side of the Atlantic. Um, Talking, describing them as epistemically insouciant, I mean, it implies, of course, that they they don't care. But that another interpretation of what they're up to is that actually, I mean, they have a strategy, you know, and that and that they, um, you know, they 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 are they are operating in the ways that they operate, um, not as a result of indifference, but as a result of calculation. Um, you know, it, sort of pushing the boundaries of what they can get away with, um, or perhaps uh, kind of realizing that 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 you know the important thing is to get these claims out there, and and that it just doesn't matter if 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 some liberal comes up and says, "Hang on, this isn't true." Um, and, and I think that they're describing that as it, you know, that is insouciant. Yeah, so describing that as insouciant just. Doesn't doesn't quite sound right to me, you know. It it it, it 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 underestimates the possibility that we're dealing here with something that's quite calculated. Um, the I guess one of the one of the puzzling features then of the attitude of insouciance is, um, especially if it does have this strategic deployment, um, you know, in order to in order to strategize well, there's something. Uh, there's there's some matter with respect to which you care about the truth, which is you know figuring out the right means to your strategic ends, um, understanding what the right tweet is to rile up the base in the particularly right way. So there's a in order to be strategic, you can't really be insouciant about certain matters, right? And maybe that's you know maybe that's part of the at least part of the profile of this particular vice is that. Um, you know, it's got to be selective in a certain way. It can't be, um, you know, you can't be, it can't be insouciance all the way down, as it were. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, in, epistemic insouciance all the way down or across the board actually probably d- just isn't 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 a possible way to be. Um, and, and 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 certainly thinking about uh, th- thinking about you know what you might call strategic. Insouciance. I mean, you're absolutely right that that of course there has to be a, a concern with questions like you know is this going to be effective or not? Is this going to is this going to win me votes? And that is a, a question about which, of course, the, the people we, we, we both have in mind. Um, I mean, care very deeply. So, um, uh, I mean, one thing that I mean, interestingly, one thing that s- some people said when they first read my stuff on epistemic insouciance. And, and I, I kind of see, see the force of this, is that they would say things like, well, I, you know, maybe you're being too generous. Well, in a way, you're being too generous to these politicians, and in a way, you're being too harsh on them. I mean, you're being too harsh in the sense that you're actually, you know, underestimating 
the, the extent to which they actually, you know, are thinking things through in, in an instrumentally rational way. Um, and the sense in which you're being too easy on them is that, is that you know, insouciance sounds a bit like nonchalance, which in some ways we think of as like, you know, rather a sort of admirable trait, you know, not caring, you know, not caring too deeply about, about trivial matters or I don't know how one wants to, what wants to put it, but, but, but certain, I mean, I, I, I don't know how this sounds in, in American English, but in British English, it isn't always, uh, a, it, it isn't always a bad thing to, to, to be described as insouciant. You know, there are, um, there are kind of pot, this kind of positive insouciance as it were. Um, and, and some people worried that, that, you know, describing the attitude of some of these rather appalling um, characters as epistemically insouciant may, kind of made them out to be uh, more appealing and more attractive than they, than they really are. Um, so, so I think there, you know, there, there are those twin, kind of twin concerns about, you know, about this, about this label. Um, and this is something that I think is worth uh, it's worth thinking about some more, but but the, I mean, for for my part, I think the thing that I'm I'm more concerned about is not is not the you know the business about being too nice to them. I'm more concerned about actually this label underestimating <laughs> how nefarious they are. I mean, underestimating you know how 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 strategic some of this stuff some of this stuff is. And I think, you know, maybe people are reluctant to see it as strategic because they think that the people who engage in these strategies don't have the intellectual wherewithal to really know what they're doing. But, you know, maybe they need to revise their their view of these individuals. Maybe, you know, maybe they're cannier than we think. Yeah. Um, and certainly if we're going to make, um, well, maybe this is more controversial than it seems to me. If we're going to make one error, maybe uh, overestimating the uh, nefariousness of people with lots of power is the right error to make. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, ab- absolutely, and I and I very much doubt that we are overestimating the nefariousness. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> so you know, there's um, uh, there there there's, there are a lot of uh, of really neat. Um, uh, uh, discussions in the book, um, and and one uh, in particular that uh, I, I think we might um, uh, we might skip because I, I definitely want to get to um, your concept of a stealthy vice. Um, but there's a really nice discussion just for the listeners uh, about um, uh, certain kinds of cases where it looks as if um, what 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 seem to be epistemic vices on your obstructivist. Um, uh, uh, view, um, nonetheless, um, uh, in certain contexts, don't get in the way of knowledge, but help us to preserve it. But uh, if it's okay with you, I, I want to sort of skip ahead uh, in the interest of time, um, because mm-hmm. the discussion of what you call stealthy epistemic vices, um, I think, is um, a really important um, feature of the book and feature of the account. Uh, so is it okay if we talk, uh, if, we, if we skip ahead and talk about that? Absolutely, yes. So yes. let me just ask then. So you, you've got, um, you know, uh, th- there is a distinctive problem when we're talking about vices and virtues in, in, in either the epistemic or the moral domain about um, your self-evaluation. And does the courageous man understand his courage? Um, and so there are certain kinds of vices, um, both in the moral sense and now, as you've argued in your book, in the epistemic sense, where it's part of the profile of the vice um, for it to be um, hard to detect among the person who is afflicted with it. 
Um, so can you tell us a little bit about these, these stealthy vices in the epistemic domain? Yeah, so, so, so here's a kind of striking fact. Right? I mean, maybe your, your listeners might li- li- like to do this exercise. Make a list of your own epistemic vices. Right? What, what do you think your own epistemic vices are? Now, I would be willing to take a bet that um, we're actually very, we're not very good um, at listing our own epistemic vices. And uh, some of us are, you know, really struggle to say what our epistemic vices um, are, even if we have plenty of them. Um, Now, in one sense, the explanation for that is kind of really easy, because I I mean, I guess that most of us, you know, like to think well of ourselves. So... (laughs) Um, it's just easier and nicer to to focus on one's um, supposed virtues rather than one's uh, vices. So I think there's a kind of completely general phenomenon here of, you know, people maybe having some difficulty in acknowledging uh, their own vices just out of a general desire to think well of themselves. However, when I talk about stealthy vices, I'm not just talking about that phenomenon. Um, so. My thought is, is, is something like this, that there are some epistemic vices or intellectual vices that we have that by their nature, by the nature of those vices, are hard to detect by the person whose vices they are. So, so there are some epistemic vices that, that block their own detection. Um, uh, and those are what I call stealthy vices. So, here, so here's, I mean, here's an example. Um, consider consider something like you know carelessness, right? So supposing that um, you know whenever you're in a restaurant and you have to add up the check and uh, divide it up between various people, you you you, you know you're fairly careless and you make mistakes. Um, now that vice of carelessness, I think, is not a stealthy vice. And the reason I think it's not a stealthy vice is that merely the merely being careless doesn't prevent you from knowing that you're careless. Right? So carelessness is not something that in that that by its nature um, obstructs its own detection. Okay, but now think about um, uh, think about something like close-mindedness or perhaps uh, intellectual arrogance. Um, so if you think of an intellectually arrogant person as someone who has a kind of intellectual superiority complex um, so they th- you know someone who has a very high opinion of himself or herself in virtue of being arrogant then that it looks like it's going to be something that's going to prevent them from detecting their own arrogance <laughs> similarly um, closed-mindedness um, is something that looks like it's going to prevent uh, prevent a person from detecting their own closed-mindedness um, so, so, so I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a substantive question: which which vices should we say are stealthy vices, and which which vices um, are not stealthy vices? But that's the, that's the basic that's the basic um, um, distinction. And of, of course, some of your your listeners will immediately recognise that that this notion of a stealthy vice is in the same ballpark as the Dunning Kruger effect. Um, so, the Dunning Kruger effect. Um, I mean, the crudest version of it is is that. I mean, so here's a very rather insulting way of putting it, but that some people are too stupid to know how stupid they are. And, 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 and that, I mean, that's, that formulation suggests that in my terms that stupidity is a stealthy vice, right? It's the fact that you're stupid that makes it hard to know how stupid you are or the fact that you're incompetent that makes it hard to know how incompetent you are. Um, 
so, so, so the notion of a stealthy vice is 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 is, is in that ballpark. And the, the really interesting question for me, and I, I mean, obviously, I spend a lot of time on this uh, in the chapter, is to explain why it is that some vices um, are stealthy. I mean, what makes them stealthy? Um, and I have a kind of long and probably far too boring to go into account of of, of, of that. But I think the you know the, the intuitive notion. I mean, I think there is an intuitive notion of um uh, uh, of stealthiness um and uh, i mean it's interesting you know thinking about thinking about things like prejudice you know while they well is prejudice a stealthy vice um and that's a really you know that's a really interesting question i mean there are all these surveys that have been done in the uk recently asking people if they're racially prejudiced and uh, i mean actually lots of people say that they are which implies that they that at least those you know for those people their prejudice isn't a stealthy vice um, um, but how many people do you know who say, well, I'm very close-minded? Of course, I'm a very close-minded person. I mean, I haven't, I don't know about you, but I haven't come across too many people who, who you know, who's, who say that, right? Because, I mean, admitting to close-mindedness uh, is admitting to something like really, really bad. Uh, and, 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 you know, maybe there are people, well, I guess there are lots of close-minded people who really don't realize that they're close-minded. And I want to say that it's not just that they have a general desire to think well of themselves, but it's the fact that they're close-minded that makes it hard for them to know that they're close-minded. Right, and I would I would guess that the same would go for any um, any vice that has as part of its profile um, an aversion or an inability to reflect on oneself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those so like close mind, sort of an aversion to reflection. Yeah, looks like it's going to have stealthiness as at least um, a component of its profile, right? Yeah, 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 that's right. So, so Um, I mean, I'm reminded, yeah, Julia Driver. Yeah. Um, I I was just going to mention, you know, Julia Driver had a paper many years ago about those, um, sort of, um. You know, claims about how modest you, you know, just sort of boasting about your modesty. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. um, these sort of these 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 um, uh, virtues and vices that have to do with ignorance is a lack of self knowledge is what makes uh, certain kinds of um, vices possible. Um, yeah. So, um, can we then connect? Um, and, and maybe this is another easy segue. So. Um, uh, even for the vices that don't have stealthiness as part of their profile, I, I take it that it's sort of one of the challenges to virtue and, and virtue accounts and, and vice accounts of almost any phenomenon is the um, uh, the question of of, of how um, we can improve once we've once we you know sort of this is, even Aristotle has to confront this at the end of the Ethics right sort of how do we make ourselves good now that we see all the ways in which we're failing um, so your book uh, closes with a discussion of epistemic self improvement um, can you run us through some of the thoughts there it seems like a a real challenge once you learn how vicious you how many how many vices we uh we as creatures are prone to epistemically um can we count on ourselves for improvement yeah so this was the hardest chapter to write and and i think in some ways the least satisfactory chapter in the book because it's i mean it's a really hard subject it's a really hard question um, so I think that, that there are kind of there are two extreme views that you that that that, that one can have, and I was really I'm really trying to kind of steer a, a middle 
a middle way. Um, so one extreme is um, <clears throat> a kind of extreme pessimist who says that, you know, the, uh, our vices are things that we're just stuck with, you know, that, that if you're closed minded, there's just nothing you can do about it. If you're prone to wishful thinking, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, uh, self-improvement isn't, isn't, uh, isn't really possible. So that's one that's one extreme. Now, I mean, of course, if you really think that, then it, it also becomes not entirely clear in what sense you're blameworthy or responsible for these vices, if there's really nothing you can do about them. Um, the other extreme is a kind of extreme optimism, which says that, oh, well, it's, you know, once you, the challenge is to, is to, is to figure out what your vices are. But once you've figured out what they are, then um, it's easy to just, um, you know, to, 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 to improve. Um, now, I mean, obviously, no, well, it seems to me that neither of those is a very um, attractive position. I think a more plausible view is that um, self-improvement um, is possible, but isn't uh, easy in most cases. And the challenge is to come up with viable self-improvement strategies. And I think that the uh, challenge is going to pan out in different ways, depending on the kind of vice um, that you're talking about, you know. So, so, so think about attitudes. Um, I mean, I think ordinarily we don't think of attitudes as things that people can't change. Um, I mean, there's a perfectly kind of ordinary sense in which you know you might you know you might say to a delinquent teenager, you really need to change your attitude towards X, whatever that is. Um, so, we, I mean, we certainly think of attitudes as things that are that are that, that are that are changeable or malleable. Now. That's not to say that you can just, you know, you can just will a different attitude. Maybe there are things that you need to do to bring about a change in attitude. But I think there's some empirical evidence, actually, that, um, you know, changing your attitudes is, um, is, is, is possible. And there are things that you can do to change your attitudes. Um, thinking, ways of thinking, again, um, I mean, I think it's not the true, it's not true that we can completely eliminate wishful thinking, but I think there are. Uh, it, it's also not true that there's nothing that we can do about um, intellectually vicious ways of thinking. Um, I mean, there are whole, you know, there are whole therapies that are based around the idea that we can change our thinking. Um, and and so it seems to me to be rather, you know, it would be surprising if we can't, if we can't do it. Um, the tricky case, the hardest case is um, uh, uh, vices that take the form of character traits Um you know, so there is the idea that, well, you know, you kind of acquire character traits in the course of your upbringing, but that once you reach adulthood, your character traits, uh, your intellectual character traits are kind of more or less fixed. Um, uh, uh, I don't think I um, think would, would endorse that view. I think that it is possible um, to do something to tackle traits like closed-mindedness if you recognize um, that you have them. But the change in this area is, you know, is very difficult. And, and I have a go in the last chapter of the book at, at, at outlining kind of various practical strategies that one can employ um, to, um, uh, to, 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 improve, to improve oneself. So that's why I, I, I kind of call my view a, a sort of moderate, a kind of moderately optimistic um, right. a moderately optimistic. Um, has your, have your own views um, about uh, some of the matters in the book, maybe with respect to um, some of the um, ways in which you think that um, 
the the kinds of vices that you discuss are important or impactful politically. Uh, have, have your views changed? I mean, you know, I, I take it that you completed writing the book at least a year ago. There's a lot that's happened, um, a lot of new, um, maybe disturbing trends. Um, so, um, have have you found yourself rethinking uh, anything that's in the book? Uh, well, up to a point. I mean, I think that that things are a lot worse than I thought, even when I was writing the book. I mean, it, I, I suppose one, one one sort of concern I would now have is would would be that you know maybe the book underestimates um, the importance of politics and political ideology in some ways. Um, you know, so if one, if you're thinking about, um, well, so take the case of conspiracy theories, which is something that I talk about in the book. Um, so, I mean, of course you can explain why someone's a conspiracy theorist by, uh, talking about their intellectual vices or the vices that sustain their conspiracy theories. And that's, you know, that's all very well. But I mean, I, <clears throat> I mean, I think you can also explain these theories in a completely in two quite other ways, which have, you know, nothing very much to do with with epistemic vices. I mean, one possibility is to say that, well, actually, um, conspiracy theories are endorsed as part of people's broader ideological outlook. You know, so, um, uh, so, so that's not exactly an epistemic vice explanation. So if, you, so if you're asking, well, you know, how do you account for the prevalence of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories? Um, well, I mean, surely the answer to that has got to have something to do with the prevalence of, you know, extreme left and extreme right ideologies of which anti-Semitism is an integral part. Um, so talking about the vices of individuals um, is, kind of misses that out. I mean, you know, unless you're going to say that, I, you know, ideologies can be explained in vice terms, and that's a whole, that's a whole different issue. Um, I think the other, I mean, the other respect, apart from sort of you know, missing out, missing out ideology, I think the other uh, issue really goes back to that discussion we were having of um, epistemic insouciance, which is that in you know in many of it, at least well at least in some of the examples I was discussing, um, I was putting um, the conduct of individuals down to. Their epistemic vices, but you know the alternate. There is an alternative interpretation, which is actually um, a much more kind of strategic interpretation, in which these you know apparently apparently epistemically awful ways of conducting oneself actually have a have a kind of have a have a point or a purpose, uh, and are highly effective relative to that relative to that purpose. Um, so if one were if one were to kind of you know, put put the point in it in in, in the broadest possible way. Uh, I guess the question that I'm you know would now be exercised by more than I was when I wrote the book was how compelling are these vice explanations? You know, so vice explanations are explanations of a person's intellectual conduct by reference to their intellectual vices, and of course, when you actually come down to it, there are lots of different explanations, possible explanations of why. You know, Trump behaves the way he behaves, or the Brexiters behave the way they behave. I mean, there's lots of explanations. Advice explanations are in there; they're in the mix. I'm convinced of that. But they, but there are, you know, there are also ideological explanations, and you know, many other explanations as well. And I think the trick is to is to, is to tell a story, to tell a plausible story, in which 
you know, vices are not neglected, um, but at the same time, um, one talks about them in relation to all these other factors that, 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 that influence our, our intellectual and uh, other conduct. Um, so that's so. Th- these are some of the some of the issues that I'm uh, um, interested in, in in now. I see. And um, uh, very quickly, is this what you'll be pursuing as um, as your further work? Yeah. So actually, I, I, I've in fact already completed another book, which is coming oh out in September. So it's a book. Uh, uh, it's a book called Conspiracy Theories, and it's a it, it's not it's not an academic book. It's a kind of trade a, a trade book. And the basic thesis of the book is that that if you really want to understand the prevalence of conspiracy theories, the understanding needs to be in terms of politics and ideology. Um, so there's very little about vices in in that book. So that's so that's uh, well, I won't call that the next project because it's already done and it's it's coming out in September. <laughs> um, the next actual book project, uh, which I'm now working on, is, uh, is is in fact going to be on extremism. It's, it's a book called Extremism: A Philosophical Analysis. Um, All right, and that is uh, you know look, look, you know looks at how what is what is what is extremism? What are the different varieties of it? Um, how is how how is extremism to be accounted for? What can we do about it? And so on and so forth. And obviously, this also connects with. Uh, polarization, which is an issue that I know you're interested in. So there's quite a bit of uh, discussion of that subject as well. Well, um, well, you're right about um, my interest in the polarization stuff, but um, uh, both of those projects, the conspiracy theory uh, book that is will be out in September uh, and this new project on extremism sound fabulous and fascinating. Um, but for now, uh, I want to wrap up our, our discussion of um, – the book that's uh, recently come out, Vices of the Mind. And um, uh, Kasim, thank you for your time today. Uh, it's a pleasure. Um, and thank you, listener, uh, for joining us for our discussion. I'll remind you that we were talking uh, about uh, Kasim Kassam's book, Vices of the Mind, From the Intellectual to the Political, which has just been published by Oxford University Press. Thank you for listening to New Books in Philosophy, and bye for now.